Hello, everyone, and welcome to Import This, a podcast for humans. This is episode 17, and we are joined today by a fellow music producer and Pythonista, uh, Lukaj Langa. Is that how you pronounce your name? <laughs> yes, close enough. Uh, hello, close Kenneth. <laughs> hello, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing pretty fine. It's uh, already 10... Uh, almost 10.30 p.m. where I am. So it's uh, it's an intercontinental uh, podcast episode today. It is, yes, spanning the globe. Cool. That's what we're here to do is bring uh, global news coverage. And speaking of which, um, unfortunately, um, Alex is not able to make it uh, to the podcast today. Oh. Uh, per usual, he's on a journey at the moment. Do you remember where he said he was going? No, not really. No, he he was going on some kind of spirit quest in the I think in the African jungle or something like that. This is Alex Gaynor, yeah, who was the original co-host of the show. So you're filling in for him today. Oh, that's interesting. Cool. Uh, that's uh, that's rather big shoes to fill. Uh, I met Alex uh, quite a few years back, and he uh, he was always a bit intimidating to me. Always always uh, overdressing for language summits at Python. <laughs> yeah, uh, but at the same time, like you know, with uh, with his experience being you know a PyPy core dev and everything else uh, about him with his um, security background and whatnot like you know it was pretty cool and then uh, then he worked for the US government right like with the digital service which was pretty cool uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually now he's at Mozilla. Talk- yeah, cool. I talked to him uh, when I was driving across the states this summer. I actually uh, spent some time in Chicago, so I uh, I made sure to meet him as well uh, on his uh, home turf. Which- and you met me as well on my home turf. <laughs> yes, which is uh, which is sort of you know off the off the beaten path of the usual path that people take. So uh, I, I I'm I'm not sure. Like, do you do you get me? any guests not python guests wow cool so yeah I, i've I, had a i've had eric holscher because he's from the area <laughs> cool so i feel but, doubly but that's special it. <laughs> yeah that's it. i've had eric holscher and uh i think that and also the python bus um uh what are the, what are the name? justin and um justin and What's her name? You know who I'm talking about? The people yes, with the Python like, bus? Yes, I, I, I remember the bus. I, uh, I don't remember Justin the Justin and of Chelsea. The okay. Justin, Chelsea, and Fibonacci mm-hmm. have visited me. <laughs> cool. Yep. So anyway, uh, for those of you who don't know uh, who Lukaj is, uh, he is the creator of a tool that you probably use, and if you don't, then you're missing out and you should use it today, called Black. And black is an opinionated code formatter for your Python code. It is deterministic, just like Go format is. So just as Go format is to Go, black is to Python. So you should run it on all of your code uh, automatically. I have it set up in my editor so that when I save any Python file, it runs black on it automatically. And it saves me so much time. So much time. So thank you for making that. Of course. Cool. I'm, I'm happy it's actually uh, useful for more people than just me. And you actually w- did some interesting things. You went through, you ran through the entire Facebook code base of Python that they have and determined that 88 characters is the optimal line length to minimize diffs. Yeah, so uh, like originally what happened was I didn't have any plans to actually write a new Python core fold, uh, formatter in 2018. Like, that seems like a silly thing to do. Uh, like, just imagine somebody starting, like, a new web framework in, in late 2018. That would be just crazy, right? Uh, so, n- not, not something that, like, people typically do, right? Um, so, um, like, I... Sort of hoped not to have to do this, and when Yap came out, like uh, I actually contributed the style that we uh, recommended at Facebook at the time uh, to Yap, but um, it had like some issues that were stemming from its design that ultimately uh, didn't allow us to uh, essentially start using it everywhere. Uh, you know. 
at the company and this is something that was very important to us because the older I get the more I understood that linters linters suck like not in general but mostly they mostly suck because um, the uh, you know they only tell you what's wrong they don't really help you with fixing the problem and if the problem that is wrong is a teaching moment this is actually fine right like they stop you and say hey you try to use a name that name does not exist that is cool that is fine but if uh, what they tell you is hey stop you are missing a space you know before your plus sign or whatever else like that is just annoying. It just slows you down. It slows down code review. It sucks. Uh, so what should happen instead is you should have uh, the machine format that code for you, right? Um, and we wanted to use the app. We couldn't. So uh, like we had some uh, projects internally to have a Python code formatter. And like, and when that didn't quite pan out, um, you know, people started asking me like, hey, when is this new uh, wonderful code formatter that people are talking about coming out? You know, when, when is it coming out? So uh, at some point I just decided, hey man, like how hard can it be, right? And in late February, I started like poking at it. I knew sort of where I wanted to go. Um, you know, I, I knew sort of like what the initial version is sh uh, should be. I actually wanted to release it, uh, like the first alpha on my birthday, which is March 7th. But obviously, you know, being like a proper software engineer, I totally missed the deadline uh, that I set for myself. Uh, but the week later, we had Pi Day. And that felt just right. Like that felt like, hey, it's sort of cute to release a new piece of software uh, on Pi Day. So I did just that. And uh, and you picked on the new project right away. And I remember, I did. yeah, when you tweeted that like that you like the project and people should look at it, like right away by the end of that day, I had probably 500 stars on, on the GitHub project, which I felt like it's just insane. It was, it was unreal to me. I'm happy to help out in any way I can. <laughs> yeah, like that, that helped out a lot because it already sort of, you know, uh, made, made it like a rocket launch instead of this sort of slow incline of users. Uh, and starting from there, uh, ironically, like it took me uh, a long while to release it back at Facebook. Uh, first of all, like it was uh, open source first project, uh, which by the way, like Facebook just let me do, which I found is pretty cool. Uh, you know, no, no questions asked. You know, I got like official papers signed that this is my IP uh, and, and we went off. Uh, yeah, we're actually pretty close to the stable release now. There's, there's pretty, uh, the, the, there is a number of things I need to fix first. Uh, one I'm looking forward to that because that way people won't have to run pipenv dash dash pre anymore. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. It's like I, I feel a bit bad about like this idea to do the pre-releases for it, but but like I really wanted to stress that this is a really new project, and you probably should be careful. Like I, uh, uh, not in the sense that it's gonna break your code, because from day one it had the sanity checks that it actually makes sure that it doesn't really break your code. If it did, yeah. if it did, then it just refuses to 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 do it um but you you know i still might change some formattings like at this the point, only problems yeah. that you have are are um if you ran it in the early days because then it would make changes that it wouldn't make now exactly this is why i wanted to have the pre-releases right like to sort of signal that hey if this happens i'm sorry but at the same time i was very explicit that this still might happen because it is not stable software yet we don't we we, we don't have many of those left uh to be honest it's going to be mostly bug fixes like in a few cases we're still missing uh standardizing on trailing commas and we're gonna fix those things and stuff like this but you know sort of big changes in how it formats code are, are rather impossible anymore uh there's way too many users at this point yeah i i know that it's way too late to make a case for this um but the double quotes versus single quotes thing i thought i thought of a uh, case for single quotes yeah. for string string wrappers uh, and it's the fact that wrappers in python are uh, single quote 
Yeah, so that's interesting. So like that is, uh, in, in fact, probably like the only like data-driven argument for single quotes. Like everything else is sort of, you know, like we, we went through this entire discussion. In fact, like if you look at the original issue, I was originally in favor of single quotes myself. But, you know, uh, there was like an entire body of arguments against single quotes. And I was just receptive to that at the time. Uh, and it just feels like, yeah, wrappers are what Python is using, and it will not change this ever because uh, compatibility reasons. There's, I'm sure, plenty of code that in some crazy way depends on how strings are wrappered today. So that's not changing, oh, yeah. right? But like at the same time, I don't really feel like that was... Um, an informed decision when Guido or whoever that was made made it. Like I just feel like you know it was just chosen sort of rather arbitrarily or maybe just uh, looking at some code at the time that the author of this rapper like I think it was Guido, but I, I would need to check. Um, you know, like made like essentially what I'm thinking is like now we are making informed decisions on style that we want to see in the decades going forward. Uh, you know, and the the, the, the rapper uh, was more about being able to recreate your object back in Python. Uh, so, so, so in this sense, it was less about like giving something useful to the to the human, like you know something nicely visible, and more about like being able to copy and paste it and made make Python do something useful with it. And uh, is there any discussion at all about maybe it being included with Python for like version three point nine or anything like that? Well, um, this is this is interesting, but I don't think it has a place uh, like including Python, at least not until it is very overwhelmingly accepted by the community. Um, okay. And we are not there yet. Um, you know what? Um, what I think would probably make sense is sort of to just um, maintain it forward with the releases of Python. Um, but um, but that that's the extent to which I, I I'm sort of willing to go with it at this point. Um, so I could see Python having a dash f, you know, and it formats the files, you know. So uh, yeah, at the same time, um, like the people who would need to agree to this, the core team, includes a number of uh, users who don't like the black code style. It's not sort of universally oh, accepted. Okay. And gotcha. uh, yeah, like um, some of them, like I think I think um, like Barry Warsaw comes to mind, have code styles that were formed like uh, decades ago and some before Pep8. Oh yeah, before Pep8. Yeah, of course. Like actually Barry Warsaw was the person who formed the Pep process for Python, right? So obviously yeah. his code style predates Pep8 by by a long shot, right? Um, and like partially the code style that he likes is actually shaped by the state of Emacs at the time, right? Like Emacs used to do a weird thing if you didn't format code in a particular way. So like Barry showed me how he is actually wrapping some uh, calls or signatures. I don't remember like which ones those were because if you don't do this, Emacs would do something weird. Uh, and funnily enough, it no longer does this, but you know, it doesn't matter because the, the code style, it's sort of like, it is in your brain at this point. Uh, so, you know, like to make, sh make Python actually sort of have dash F or whatever you, you mean, like, you know, we would need to uh, go through a very, very very complicated uh, process of convincing all those people that this this um, actually has a place within Python, and I'm not sure yeah. if it does. I I'm not making an argument either way. I guess I, but I, I guess I am. I'm saying that I feel like having a standard is better than having. Even if it's not one everyone agrees with, is better than having none, right? Yeah. So in this sense, what I would like to see is something maybe in the in the vein of MyPy, right? Like MyPy is a project that is developed by um, um, separate core team, right? Like it um, it has very little overlap with the core team of CPython itself, um, and 
even though it lives under the Python organization on GitHub, right? It is uh, not really like Python official in the sense that you need to use it if you use Python. No, you don't. Yeah. You can use it if you choose so, uh, but if you hate static typing, if you decide that it is absolutely non-Pythonic and you wish like it was never part of Python, you can actually not ever touch MyPy and that is okay. That is fine. Yeah, you did a lot of work with MyPy, didn't you? Uh, yeah, so like my contributions to MyPy itself are rather minimal. Uh, to the type checker itself, I didn't contribute much, admittedly. Uh, but what I was working on was the initial uh, PEP or that introduced typing to uh, um, to Python. Uh, I was working with Yuka and Guido. In, in, in fact, I wrote the initial draft for this based on our conversations with Yuka and Guido. Later, they actually like put way more work than me on this entire subject. Like, obviously, them working on the type checker uh, like probably puts their contributions like you know like 99 to one compared to like what I did. Um, but ever since, I actually sort of touched on one or two things that are rather visible, like you know pep. 563, which, you know, sort of um, makes annotations lazily evaluated or actually just postpones the evaluation of them. And Python 3.7 is something that I added because I believe, like, in the future, this is going to be a major factor in typing usability. Uh, so, yeah, like, I, I, I have some work on that because I believe for big code bases, uh, typing is a way to communicate your intention as a programmer to the reader of the code, which is also yourself in a year, right? So I think like typing is a very important part of, uh, you know, mature code bases of big code bases. Yeah, I'm, I decided to make a new project recently called Responder, which I want to talk about. Cool. And I decided not to use typing on that yet. Um, I'm planning on adding typing to it at some point, at least to the public API. Um, but not until it's really like rock solid, you know? Yeah, so I, I think like at this point you probably uh, would already get rather good mileage out of it. Uh, like the, there were two major components to making uh, typing work with Python. Like first of all, like the type checker needed to be good enough that you can depend on it. Uh, and um, for a long time, like it was a big project. It was a big undertaking. Uh, MyPy had rather uh, a large number of rough edges. Um, and also, you know, it was rather slowish. But I'm happy to say, like at this point, if you just use it, both both are not necessarily true anymore. Uh, MyPy is actually like you know uh, way faster now being compiled with MyPy C, um, and also uh, it um, it is already mature enough that you can pretty much just depend on it now. The second component of typing though was this one from Facebook as well, right? That's not oh, MyPy. Yes. Uh, like admittedly, like I need to kick you know. Some of our contributors to like you know um, work on the open source side of things a bit more because uh, currently like the focus uh, is um, rather directed internally. Um, in fact, like uh, Pyre, which is the name of the type checker that uh, uh, Facebook works on. Um, is uh, sort of like what flow is to TypeScript. So the point of it is a bit different. Um, Pyre is supposed to be a type checker that is a base of a bigger static analysis tool, right? So a big point of Pyre is that, you know, it just allows you to just take this uh, typing information that you have and build more uh, complicated static analysis on top of it. Like, for example, Anal uh, analyzing um, security implications of certain flows of data, right? Like, oh, uh, okay. Yeah, or for example, being like a non 
uh, brain dead linter, right? Because currently linters are very primitive because they mostly either only look at a single file at a time, like what Flake 8 is doing, or even in case of PyLint, they don't actually do full program analysis in the sense of following types. So uh, it, it cannot really tell you for sure that, oh, this call is unsafe, you shouldn't use it, because it doesn't really know if this call is not just a name clash with a method that is uh, called the same coming from a different library. Um, yeah. But it would be amazing, right, if we had a linter that can just pinpoint exactly, like, boom, this call is deprecated, don't use it. Uh, and it knows for sure that it is the right call because it knows all the types. Yeah, I think the only thing that approaches that is uh, what Microsoft is working on in VS Code with, for the Python language server. Yes. Yes, I think that's the thing that approaches that. Yeah, but like that also requires a form of type checking to, to achieve this, right? Like, you know, I, I have not looked at how uh, the current language server is built. Um, typically, what the language servers were built before this, so um, like the Palantir one used in Atom and whatnot, uh, were based Jedi on Jedi. Jedi is the one that... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jedi. Yeah, so, so, so Jedi is not, you know, exactly a type checker, right? It's uh, That doesn't necessarily give you all the information that you need at all times. Uh, it is still like yeah, it just wonderful. it just executes the code, right? Uh, yeah, like and, and sort of you can sometimes do this, but you it's not static analysis at all. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I well now I I'm not sure because I, I actually like uh, looking at the author um, and like in my interactions with him when I started Black, uh, you know uh, he actually reached out to me about the fork of, or like the bundled version of lib223, which is the, uh, you know, the syntax tree that I am using for the formatter, uh, since yeah. he, he has his own, that was also uh, a long time ago, a fork of lib223, uh, which is called Parso. And Parso is like, oh, cool. yeah, Parso is actually like very good in, in, in the sense that it allows you to format, uh, well, format, it allows you to parse uh, different versions of Python and it understands like what the differences between syntax of different Python versions are. For example, it would understand that Python 3.7 requires async await to be proper keywords versus 3.6, which doesn't require this, versus 3.4 that doesn't even have a concept of async and await in the language. So like yeah. it can do like plenty of st- stuff like this and the tree is cleaned up compared to like to three. So this is what is actually being used by Jedi. So I would be surprised if there would not be a static analysis component to it. Uh, but I actually don't know much about how Jedi uh, like it works internally. So we would need to actually sort of go and read the code to, to, to talk more about this. Just as a user, I know that like, you know, for, uh, for plenty of situations where there's meta classes involved and stuff like this, like doesn't actually like follow what, uh, what a type checker could do. And um, like MyPy tends to be more uh, powerful here. For example, uh, MyPy has a plugin for adders, right? So if you ever used uh, adders, um, like you know what I'm talking about. And if you didn't, like you probably should look at it because it's a, it's a library that greatly reduces boilerplate in creating classes uh, in Python uh, to the extent that like it was actually sort of um, like in, it inspired um, the di- data classes library uh, that is now part of Python 3.7. I like data classes. I don't like adders. So, uh, like, um, actually, like, well, why would I don't dislike that? adders? I, I don't dislike adders. I'm, I'm actually a testimonial on the homepage. I think that is a great idea. I just personally don't mind the boilerplate. I actually kind of like writing it. Okay, like, cool. Uh, like the the thing the thing about adders for me is that like, if you have to write boilerplate, uh, it's it sort of it is inevitable that at some point you're gonna make a mistake because um, like sometimes it's not like you're writing the entire boilerplate in one go. It's like you're writing it cool and then you're gonna modify a thing like six months later and then modify another thing six months later and then add another thing two years later and. And the, 
actual ways in which those things you're adding and modifying interact might be sometimes elusive. Uh, so removing some of the boilerplate is simply, you know, not even a matter of removing lines of code, but uh, a way for you to like avoid bugs in your code. Just avoid. Yeah, mistakes. that's why it, it makes sense to me as a language feature. I'm glad that it is one. Yeah, cool. I actually would like to see this more integrated in the syntax because, like, okay, it's a cute um, decorator, but there's a, there's a number of things that we cannot quite, like, you know... Well, it, it is a bit annoying to have to, like, import it and, you know, prefix all classes now that you're writing with this, you know, at data class class decorator. Um, you know, so, so, like, Kotlin has a similar concept and it just has uh, a word, like, well, two words two keywords data class and boom that does a thing um like in my oh, you have to import it in python so like in in uh in you you kind of have this currently but like um you know it would be my dream to actually have like you know uh a built built-in syntactical feature like this that would be cool yeah, is it not? You have to import it right now. Yes, now you have to import data classes, and from that data classes, you have a data oh. class decorator. So. I thought I thought the decorator was built in, like static method. No, no, it's not. <laughs> oh, well, that should change. Yeah, right. So uh, I also think it would be cool if that would be like a proper built-in feature. That would be cool. That would be cool. So do you want to talk about Responder? Responder, yeah, cool. Uh, as I joked already, you know, like a silly thing to start a new web framework in 2018. Like what made you, uh, what made you yeah, want to, yeah, what made you want to actually pursue a project like this? Well, I got really fed up with, um, I was building Kubernetes software for about a month and I got really frustrated with not being able to ship anything. <laughs> Um, because it's really difficult to write Kubernetes software. <laughs> and because uh, I was trying to build an operator. Yes. Um, and it was doing builds and running Docker and Docker and producing build artifacts and trying to get them to run on a private registry with Minio and all these services talking to each other. And then Docker doesn't, on the host machine, doesn't talk to the Kubernetes engine. DNS, so it's just a big nightmare. So anyway, I decided to make a web framework. I was gonna, I decided to go back to Python and and put my energy there. And I was just like, what can I possibly do? I've done everything. Uh, I haven't done a web framework. So I was like, I, I, the idea started with, I really wish that Flask and Django and all those had a requests client built into them. Uh-huh. That was the for for testing. So I was gonna write. Um, like a like a request testing plugin that like mounted any Wizgy app and let you write your tests. Um, but then I decided to why not just write a whole framework that just has that built in. So yeah. that's what I ended up doing. Wow. Okay. Cool. Because like it, it really sounds like it is a counterpart to requests, right? Like, you know, you have requests, you have responses. So responder is the thing that produces the responses. So, uh, like, it almost sounds like you you, you planned it all along. I mean, you would think that, but I, I, I definitely have that name. Responses is a great name that David Kramer took, unfortunately, for a marking library for requests. So that's what I would have called it, is uh, responses. But uh, Responder is what I ended up going with. And it turns out there's another tool out there called Responder, which is a penetration testing tool. Oh, cool. Um, so, but that's not on the cheese shop. So, is in my mind, they didn't claim the name. So, I'm taking it. Well, you know, like um, there is plenty of conflict, right? Like in terms of sort of uh, choosing choosing a unique name at this point is pretty much like a lost cause. There's no way. I was actually super surprised when I was thinking of a name for the formatter. Like, I I, I was I I was at a loss how to name the formatter. Like, it, it, in fact, like that. Yes. Yeah, some of the colors are actually have reserved on the yeah, cheese shop. they are, but black was not, which is like, really? Wow, that is... That- I have, like, purple eyes one that I have. Yeah, that was that was very weird, like, that, that, that such, such a common word was free. I feel like in 2018, that is just jackpot, you know? I uh, I never would have guessed that any colors are left. So I was just by 
friend was surprised that Responder was available, but I was excited that it was. Yeah, good so, for you. So the idea behind Responder is I wanted to take Flask. I wanted to take Falcon, make it more like Flask, and then give it some upgrades. So, for example, um, when you give a route, you in, in Flask, you have it, it has its own syntax for the strings for the parameters. But in my framework, in Responder, you just use f-string literals. And it will automatically use the parameter list uh, given in the f-string literals, um, oh, which cool. is really nice. Yeah. So, so that's that's like a, a nice upgrade. Uh, in addition, everything there's only one import statement, so you just import responder, and then you uh, each uh, view it gets a request and a response object passed into it, uh-huh. and then you mutate those objects. So you 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 can set the text of the response, or you can set the media of it, and that'll return JSON, um, or you can set the headers. Uh, you don't have to return anything. You just mutate the object. Yeah, it's since, being since in Django along. you are also just mutating the same thing, right? Like so, just returning it is sort of a, like a secondary action of the same thing, right? Like you, you're already mutating the same response, I guess. Uh, yeah, or like no, like w- what is it in Django? You just get the request. You produce the uh, response. If you have a middleware, yes. if you have a middleware, then you you get the ex- the currently produced response and you can mutate it forward views oh gotcha right right like views produce a new response because views are not supposed to be composable uh but middlewares do and like in the case of middlewares they uh they get a response that they can then decorate further or change or compress or do whatever right well, in this instance, views are slightly composable because I have class-based tech, uh, views that allow you to have, with no inheritance, you just have on get, uh, and it'll run that, uh, you know, as a method uh, for your view function on a get request, and then if you, it can also have on request, and it'll run that for all types of requests. So oh, it'll run on a get request if you have both of those defined, they would both get run. Yeah, so so it, w- when that composes, then you essentially have middlewares now, and that's cool, right? Because uh, I, I actually talked with, uh, I don't remember if that was Jacob or uh, or Russell or Simon, I, I don't remember, like any, it's, it's, uh, some of those three um, early Django core devs, and I asked them, like, why is not everything a middleware right because um in the end like there, there is this uh like route that everything is taking from request going through all the middlewares and then all the way back um and the reason is it was like this from day one so if uh if django was created today like it could be simplified like it would probably have everything composable uh it, it sort of makes sense to me, right? Because this is how, uh, for example, like the compression and authentication, like all sorts of other nice things, like can be composed together. That's nice. Yeah. In addition, like if you want to render a template, you don't have to import another statement. It's just the API object has a, a rent a template method on it. So you just do API dot template, or if you have a template string, you do template string. Oh, so it's sort of like it's uh it, it has some conventions that it that it likes because I guess. Uh, does that mean that you only support a single templating engine, or, or, or are they pluggable? Uh, no, it's just Ginger 2. But you can, it's it's just a response. You could build up anything you want and do anything in the view. I you don't see. have to use the, the templating engine. Yeah, but it's just, it's just your, a built-in templating engine. But this is your convention, right? Like you uh, provide yes. the responder and you say, I think you should all use this. Cool. Exactly. Yeah, and it also supports um, open API schema support. So you can say, uh, you can provide a swagger in your doc strings, and you provide some metadata about your API when you create it, and it'll automatically render a schema for you. And then if you want, you can have automatic uh, interactive, interactive documentation for your API as well. That is pretty cool. So, yeah, and it also allows you to mount uh, Wizgy apps. Uh, even though it's an ASGI framework, it, it can let you you can take a Flask or Django app and just mount it at a sub route somewhere. 
So if you have a blog or something and you want to run that within your main web application, you can do that. Cool. It so, also uh, supports if, uh, if, single uh, page web apps. So if Responder is asynchronous, then how how does uh, plugging in a traditional WSGI app not block it? It uses a, a thread pool executor to execute blocking. Um, Oh yeah, cool. So for all like I/O and whatnot that is happening, that is freeing the gill, like you're gonna be able to serve other things asynchronously at the same time. Exactly. Cool. Yeah, yeah so- but you can also have background tasks. So if you if you want to say you can mutate the re- response and then say this function that I define here is is a background task, mm-hmm. and you can with a decorator. And then you can call that function, and it'll return immediately. But it'll be executed in the future with concurrency.futures. Cool. Yeah. So, so it seems like it sort of just um, takes a bunch of uh, best practices and just provides like a, you know, a configuration of them, like a composition of them to the user. Uh, That's kind of the idea. Yeah. And it, yeah, it also has static uh, file um, white noise built into it, so it has a it'll have, it has a production static file server and production web server built into it too. So it's uh, it's kind of ready to go out of the box, no configuration needed. That's cool. So like, did, did did you write like a new web server for it, like, or, or did you base on something existing? Well, first I was using Hogzug, and I was basing this off of Wesgi, and uh, it was all working, everything except for the async await stuff. Um, it was all just syn- it was just all synchronous, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, Tom Christie came along because I went to talk to him because he made a web framework recently, so I wanted to hear if he had any thoughts, and he said that I should support ASGI. I asked him if there was a workzug for ASGI, and he's like, "Yep, I wrote one. It's called Starlet." So I, um, he sent me a pull request, and it moved everything over to Starlet, and magically we were an ASGI framework. That is pretty cool. Yeah, because like I, uh, I actually saw Starlet, uh, you know, as a, as a project that is sort of gaining traction now. Uh, like in fact, I think like I learned about it uh, because it is, if I'm not mistaken, for a matter with black, and somebody just let me know about this. Uh, so yeah, like I saw like oh there, there there is in fact like a new framework that does ASGI, and then when I heard that there's Responder, I was like, come on, there's still another one. Like you know why can't we just have nice things and compose? And now you're like, yeah, well yeah, we are composing. That is amazing. That is great. Like you know so, yep. so yeah so. That uh, that makes me very happy. Yeah, and we're um, we're learning from each other. So he's taking a lot of my ideas and putting them into Starlet, and I'm doing the same the other way around. I'm trying to keep the 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 coupling very loose. Um, so because like with when you're using Flask, you have to refer to the, refer to the Workzug documentation quite a bit. Uh huh. And I don't like that, so I want to keep it the coupling as loose as possible, so that like you know, if you're using Responder, you're using Responder. It doesn't, you don't care what it's written in. Yeah. Okay. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, so, uh, how is uh, Responder going? Like, is this something that like you feel like uh, is taking off? Like, are you happy with uh, how it's doing? I'm very happy with the reception that it's received. It has about 1,900 stars on GitHub. Um, it has some open pull requests, uh, some issues. The issues that are coming in are good, and some of them are a bit tricky to solve. So there's some big hurdles that we'll have to solve in the future if we're going to really you know, take on Flask or something like that, I think. Um, like WebSockets aren't really working right now, mm-hmm. and that's that's a big thing is getting WebSockets working. But I hate WebSockets; they're the worst. <laughs> Why do you hate them? Uh, they're just the worst idea in the world. They're like, let's take a completely stateless system, a network of stateless machines running stateless services with a stateless protocol, and let's provide a, a socket between that and with and let's like preserve a lot of state in it and it needs to be a stateful connection 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort of like reminds me of, you know, uh, the same idea with the uh, old J2EE, you know, frameworks where you also had like, you know, you produced beans, right? Which were like those uh, sort of services, but really just objects, but not really. And they had um, different kinds and you you had stateful and stateless. And the stateless were were way easier to actually uh, support. And the stateful were dreadful. Like this, this is where all the bugs were hiding. Well, anyway, you also wanted to talk about music. Yeah, of course. Uh, music is sort of like what what I would do if I didn't have issues with you know uh, money and ambition, because uh, you cannot really sort of you know get either rich or super popular with music these days, right? Like you know, uh, for what's the difference between a family? I'm sorry. What is the difference between a pizza and a family? <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. What is the difference between a pizza and a musician? Oh, uh, I don't know. A pizza can feed a family of four. Exactly. Yes. Like now we have this uh, democrat democracy of like cheap devices and cheap software, and rather like amazing possibilities. Like so, if if you just want to, you can sing, you can make music rather easily, and people do. So uh, there's uh, so many distribution channels, and uh, it's also cheap. That making a living as a musician immensely hard uh so i mostly do this as a hobby these days yeah i'm the same way i i do it i have a professional presence when meaning i i have like professional level albums that i release but i don't it's not a professional hobby or anything like that i don't make any money for my albums i just give them away for free yeah, I, I, I get you. Like, I, I don't even do that. Like, you know, I, I do have two albums, which were sort of uh, like different kinds of things that I do. Uh, like the, the first one was really just, I've been, uh, I, I had this time in 2009, I think there was, uh, where uh, I uh, followed this fad that was uh, of a few friends having like, they, they did something daily, right? Like they, for example, drew daily. Every day they did something. And and they released it and they just shown to people like hey I'm doing this and I uh, and I really wanted to like also be able to do a, such a thing but it was very hard to like let's produce like a good sensible music track every day no not possible not really but what I found was you actually can uh, and I, so like I, I'm, I'm a piano player like make like a short piece of just you know piano improvisation and release that so I kept releasing that for like close to half a year like essentially daily so I I, uh, I had like 150 of them recorded and as you can imagine like most of them are not very interesting um, but I found like a good like 15 or so that I was very happy about and I was like hey this actually sounds like something that I should maybe share with somebody it would be it would be a bummer if like I just lost the hard drive or something and it would be lost forever so uh, one of the albums is just that it's just my uh, like a selection of improvisations I've recorded over like you know a few years because most of them were from that six months but some of them are later uh, that's exactly how my albums work is I I just publish a song to SoundCloud like one or two or three songs every one or two or three days and I um, and then I randomly like once a year go through and pick 15 songs and just make an album out of it yeah, so like I can I can totally relate to this because that way you sort of can find the best ones. Do you uh do you make any changes to them when you are assembling uh, the album or you just put put them not as on, they are? Not on this last album. I just released an album this week. Uh, you can find it on SoundCloud or um, Spotify if you want. It's called um, As Above So Below mm-hmm. by Infinite State, and uh, it's on. Um, iTunes and all that too. Um, it is the first album that I did not master. I just released the song straight from Ableton. Uh-huh. Um, usually I run it through Ozone and before I release it, but I thought that this sounded good enough without it needing Ozone. Yeah, so like I, I would I would typically spend like a lot of time actually mastering stuff because uh, like when I didn't um, for some of the music I shared um, before, you know, um, 
Like I found that it might sound great on my particular equipment and my particular headphones or earphones of choice. And then you sort of show it to somebody on their laptop or on their, you know, sort of Bluetooth, um, sort of, um, you know, uh, speaker or in their car or whatever. And it sounds just weird and it just sounds totally wrong. It's either over-based or it doesn't doesn't have any bass on it or um, if you just play a song and then something from the radio like the volume difference is just sort of very annoying so I uh, I will spend like a rather significant time to make sure that like you don't really have those problems like you know yeah I'm really good at doing that just built into Ableton oh I see okay cool so you know like uh, for for me especially when I recorded the improvisations which were like essentially just piano straight to logic at the time and you know just make make sure like it doesn't actually clip Uh, you know to add maybe some reverb sometimes or or sometimes not even and just release that because I was doing that daily so I couldn't really spend like you know any time like uh, reinforcing inventing the wheel every day I had just this process and I went through it every day so I felt like some of the songs were really quiet because they were some of them were like you know rather uh, rather um, you know loud and you know when you create the, the album you really need to make sure that all of this actually composes well together Yes, that's why I have a theme that I use throughout my music where there's like a few riffs that I use a lot and they are a common theme that you'll find throughout all my music. And so when I pick those 15 songs, they'll have some commonalities in in them. All right, cool. So how many tracks does this album have? Uh, 22, I think. 22. That is a a lot of uh, tracks for a single album. Would it fit on a CD or do do you not think of this format anymore? No, yeah, I follow the Red Book standard. Okay, okay. So as above, so below. uh, Does it fit a single CD? You're saying it does. Let me see. Uh, Oh, cool. Yes. (laughs) That is pretty amazing. So like you're uh, pretty much just uh, maximizing how much you can fit. Yep, as much as possible. All right, cool. So, uh, like, what's your favorite song on on that album? Um, probably uh, the journey, which is number two. I think that's the best song I ever made with Ableton, and I don't use Ableton anymore. I use an MPC. I got rid of my whole Ableton setup, and it was kind of like my exit uh, song because it was like I can never write a song better than this, so I might as well uh, try something new. That is cool. So, so w- w- what does that mean that you got rid of your Ableton, uh, you know, sort of setup, and now you're using MPC? What does that mean? Uh, I have an Ableton. I did have an Ableton push, uh, which I sold on eBay, and then I also sold my license to Ableton mm-hmm. on eBay as well. Uh, so I no longer own a copy of Ableton. And it, before I had all my synths hooked up to a. Uh, an audio interface that had like 10 inputs that went to my computer and I sold that too and now I just use an MPC which is what hip hop producers use to make music it's a hardware device and it has like four channel ins um, like two MIDI in two MIDI out Uh, it's got 16 pads that you can play chromatically or in uh, in whatever um scale that you're playing in um or you can use them for for drums they're really good for drums and uh it's a great little device i i can get away from the computer and make music which is nice wow cool so so what you're saying essentially is like you have an instrument like uh an audio workstation that does not involve uh a mac Correct. Yeah, I make com- music. All my music that I make now that's on SoundCloud is made completely without a computer. Wow, cool. I, like, are there any tracks on that last album that were produced on the MPC? Uh, maybe one of them. I'd have to double check. That is interesting because, like, I also uh, um, like have this issue where, like, 
if you really just want to do music, you probably don't want to sort of feel like it's still work, that you're still at the same machine that you're typically on and you still have all your notifications and your software on. So uh, I also sort of feel like tactile devices like my piano and, you know, sort of like the synths, like the module synths I like a lot, uh, like they uh, provide like just a total escape from that, that typical engineering, you know, outlook like the typical engineering uh, environment yeah that's one of the reasons i ordered the opz that i told you about the other day yeah i think that's a device that you would really get into so i i so i i have a device like this that you know about like which is the novation circuit which is uh yes. it, it, it is a it is a total all-in-one but it is immensely deep for how cheap it is uh it is actually like uh, I, I take it everywhere with me now and like amazingly it is popular in some sort of groups of people and I have to take it out like in sort of uh, airport security and whatnot and the, the number of nods and pats on the back I got like from this little device is just amazing people recognize it, yeah, people recognize it and know what it is they're like oh cool uh, you know so it, it, it's, it's, it's great like and the nicest thing about the circuit is that uh, unlike a module synthesizer, it doesn't get people totally terrified and, you know, sweaty when you're using it on an airplane. Uh, yeah. Because on a, there was a flight, in fact, uh, where I took out my module synthesizer and started just hooking up cables and, like, you know, jamming out to, uh, to what I was producing. And uh, uh, that was in business class where you probably just can do whatever you want. Uh, so, you know, I, I wasn't thrown on the floor. Like, nobody sort of spray gassed me or did whatever else. Like, they just asked me politely, sir, what are you doing? Because they thought, that, <laughs> yeah, they were very scared that I'm doing something that's going to end up like with the plane you know not uh arriving at the final destination uh but i just said like hey it's like uh, kraftwerk right it's uh, electronic music and that was lufthansa so you know like the um the stuff there was like oh kraftwerk we we know what that is that's fine uh <laughs> yeah so that worked out well but still the circuit looks like an instrument it it looks way safer which is probably funny because you 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 probably could have made like a you know dangerous device that just looks cute and people would be absolutely caught off guard but it's how humans think right like if they see a a, a bunch of electronics with tons of cables sticking out of them like that looks more um, dangerous than something that is just nicely designed and it just has blinking lights, you know. Uh, that, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm excited about the OPZ for is this. The, it's so small and it's so tiny. It's like six or seven inches wide, and it. I just want to be able to get have an instrument that I can carry around and be able to play along with people, like if they're jamming. I, that's what I want, and I I want to learn to play keyboard and everything, uh, learn the scales. Uh, so I can do that. So what uh, what I would like to see is like you actually spending the time like to to uh, get to know it well enough so that when you bring it to the next PyCon, we can actually do something together with it because I'm per for sure gonna have my circuit with me. Like you know that would, yeah, be, awesome. that would be pretty cool. Uh, yeah, because like I feel like you had the OP1 too, right? Like what happened to that thing? I sold it. Yeah. So like, w w why? Like, what was wrong with it? It's like it's it was just a noise machine for me. I couldn't get into the workflow of recording a song because it was tape based, and it made you like loop tapes and like yeah. I'm a, I'm a very sequence oriented person. I'm a drummer, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so this LPZ is a sequencer, so I think I'll like it a lot better. Yeah, I hope so. That would be cool because like the OP1 felt like it, it, it's a really neat toy to me, but it the workflow felt bizarre. And like the innovation circuit, it's really like an Ableton Live in a box. It really sort of feels like there are plenty of, you know, sort of this, oh, oh, the same ideas in it. So if, if you ever use Ableton, like, you know, innovation circuit, you can just start using it right away. It just feels right at home. That's great. So are there any other topics we should talk about? Uh, I'm not sure. Is Responder a formatter with black? Of course. That is good to hear. Uh, is uh, requests formatted with black? Request 3.0 is. 